0: Fun seekers, a very good Tuesday to you. A very good Tuesday indeed. On my blog, I have asked for you to give me a question, and so I have compiled all of your questions and I'm going to try to get to all of them. I will try to answer these concisely. Aww. And because of our sponsors, we're going to have to have some commercials embedded in between. So there will be times where I will pause, we'll shift to a commercial, and then I'll come back and answer some more questions. Ow! The first question is from Scott Blair at grapplerschurch.tv. Scott says, What do you think about personal spiritual mentoring, either in simple churches or traditional churches? I see men facilitating groups, but not directly choosing others to disciple. Jesus demonstrated this model. Paul demonstrated. Why don't we? do you? I have written quite extensively on how Jesus trained Christian workers and I'm not just speaking about the twelve but he also had some women who followed him as well Paul duplicated that model that Jesus started in Galilee Paul duplicated it in Ephesus and I talk about this in detail in the book Finding Organic Church which really is a book on the apostolic ministry of the first century and what we can apply it to today My answer to this, because you asked if I mentor people, is broken up in a couple sections. I would say that there are different levels to it. One level would be, with respect to every church that I have planted and or worked with, I've had a discipleship slash apprentice relationship with the people in those churches. And that relationship was never official, there were no titles given to it, there were no labels. It was organic. It was very natural. It was something that something that just came out of the soil of working with the church down in the trenches, hands-on. And to get a first-hand glimpse of that, what that looks like, at least a peek, and I say glimpse because there were many, many hours where I spent time with the believers in these various fellowships But you can get a small glimpse into it through the discipleship course. Because those are messages given to a brand new organic church plant. And as far as I'm concerned, this layer of discipleship encompasses things like how to know the Lord, how to follow the Lord, how to get in touch with your spiritual instincts, how to listen to and follow the Holy Spirit, how to live by the indwelling life of Christ how to know when you're living by Christ and when you're not living by Christ, how to increase your spiritual stature and strength, how to give, how to bless others, how to encourage others, and how to function in an open meeting with other brothers and sisters. So that certainly is a very large part of discipleship as we see in the New Testament. But for the most part, to my mind, those aspects have been largely neglected by people who talk about and teach on discipleship today thankfully there are exceptions but there's another level and that has to do with specific training of individuals when it comes to the work of God and so I would use the term training opposed to discipleship to describe this aspect of mentoring so if you can think of it like this think of mentoring a la discipleship, having two legs to it. One leg would be the actual apprenticeship of believers when it comes to living the Christian life and when it comes to functioning in a body of believers. The other leg would be specific to those who are called to the work of God, particularly the work of church planting. And that has to do with ministry, regional ministry, local ministry, That has to do with equipping the saints. That has to do with handling all the problems and opposition that comes with being in the work. I have had periods in my life where various, typically young men, have asked me to mentor them. Now, these were local brothers in various churches that I have worked with. On a few occasions, I took a season to meet with them once a week and just to talk about some of the inner workings of our relationship to the Lord, experiences that I've had, both in working with churches, working with God's people, both from failures and successes and the difficulties and the struggles and all the various things that it entails. And those went on for several months. I've only done it a few times, but that was not an official training or anything. It was more conversation. I have had mentors in my life about five different ones altogether. Some mentored me at a distance, meaning I was mentored mainly through their books and their writings and their speaking, Listen to everything they put out. If they were living, would ask them questions. And then if they were local, in a few cases they were, then many, many meetings and many, many phone conversations. On my blog, there are two posts. One is called A Tale of Two Mentors and another one is called mentors and mentees it comes out of the book revise us again and these are lessons i've learned on both ends of the mentoring piece i am not now mentoring anyone and i do not feel the lord is leading me to do that at this time i believe that when i'm older in my 60s which is quite a ways from now if god is merciful to me i will train young christian workers those who are called to the work but i do not see that any time in the near future, and I'm going to wait on the Lord for that. That will be a very intense, intentional, local sort of thing. In the meantime, I am available to answer questions by anyone. I have said this many, many times. I am no expert. I do not believe there are any experts in the kingdom of God. All of us have had experience. If we've been down this road, all we can offer, and I speak of any Christian, is our experience both good and bad. Is our experience, what we have learned that has worked in our lives, our observations, and what we've learned from others and from the Lord directly. And so that's why I write a blog. That is my form of mentoring anyone who feels inclined to read what I have to say. That's why I put out books to contribute to the body of Christ what I feel God has given me. And that's why I speak in events. And do a podcast, which contains many conference messages as well. So I hope that answers your question. It's a good question, Scott, and I appreciate it. And now we'll go on to the next one. This is Brandon Chase at BrandonChase.net. When someone begins living by the indwelling life of Christ, oftentimes long-standing relationships in the church become shaken hurtful things can be directed toward the individual who is now living differently judgmentalism criticism slander misunderstanding even persecution in your experience and wisdom how does one balance our call to love and engage these brothers and sisters in the body while facing a negative response from those same people how far do you move toward them in preserving love or is there a point where you shake the dust off your feet it is true that if you're going to live by the lord you're going to engender hostility from the other realm and that is typically going to come in the form of slander lies misunderstandings suspicions etc etc this is clear all throughout the new testament just look at the life of jesus just look at the life of paul and there you have it jealousy is another great motivator here and again this is clear both from old and new testament love is treating others the way you want to be treated if you were in their shoes We are to walk in love. We are called to walk in love, which is Christ. He is the embodiment of love toward everyone, friends and enemies critics and trolls love means you do not wish the worst on them you do not attack them you do not seek to hurt them but that is going to mean in some cases you bear the cross and you're silent and you give it to the Lord in other cases the Lord may lead you to correct them but before you would correct anyone I would suggest you read the article how not to correct a fellow Christian it's on my blog in the archives You can correct in love, you can correct in the flesh, and the two are very different. So the Lord is going to lead you in some cases to just basically give what is happening to you to him and to bear the cross in that area and let him deal with it fully. And other times he may lead you to talk with the person per Matthew 18 and try to find out what is happening. Find out if you could reconcile with a person or reason with them, this is a walk in the Spirit, and the Lord will lead you in different ways regarding different situations and regarding different people. But love covers all of it. You do not have bitterness, you do not have animosity. You seek that person's best. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Tread very carefully on how you treat others, tread very carefully in how you respond and i have taught for many years that the christian who's walking in the spirit ought not to defend themselves on the other hand if others rise to their defense so be it if someone asks you a question and you answer it you're not defending yourself that's different but if someone attacks you and you defend yourself you become angry and you attack back well then i believe that will not please the lord and will not bode well for you
1: hi i'd like to cash this check let me. See. Oh, I can't cash this check. No, don't you read the sign? We don't cash personal checks. No, no. Oh, no. pers- okay. I'm sorry. I didn't see the sign. Well, thanks anyway. We'll see you. Okay. Hey, wait, hey, wait, wait, Where are you going? Well, actually, I'm going to another check cashing place. I know the girl there. She'll cash this check. It's just out of my way, so I stopped here. Okay. Well, let me see the check again, please. Okay. Okay. Oh no, no, no. I told you, no personal checks. I can't cash this. Okay. We'll see you later. Wait! No, 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 no. no. You, you, you argue. What? You argue with me until I give in and, and cash your check. Oh, okay. okay. Come on, I have ID. You can call the bank. The The funds are there. How many times are have to the table, huh? No person of checks cash. It's policy. I can't. fine. Okay. goodbye. Oh. No, 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 no. Don't leave yet. You what? tell me. You tell me. You tell me a story, you know? You're huh? Like you got an emergency and you, you need food for your kids and your uh, car's broken off. Then you'll cash it? Yes, I'll cash it. They'll say car's mm. broken, need food. Need look, look, please help. I, I need food for my kids and oh. my car is Broken down. Okay, let me, let me see. Let me see the check. Okay, okay, let me see. okay. How long have you been on your job? Four and a half years. Oh, wait a second. This is a personal check. Read the sign. Do you need glasses or something? No, no. personal check. But no exceptions. Okay, not okay. okay. Oh, You said. Okay, okay, I'll cash the check, but this time only, okay? At A to Z Check Cashing, no ID is required. Make us your new bank.
0: All right, Caleb Succo, forgive me if I pronounce that wrong, from sucofamily.org asks, Frank, I would like to know how you determine what is simply descriptive of the experience of the early church in Acts and what is prescriptive. I have dealt with this in much depth in the book Reimagining Church, and so if you want my arguments and reasoning on that in detail, I also talk about contextualization, which is related to this question, and culture as it relates to the church church, then you'll definitely want to pick up that book and read it. But basically, those things that are taught directly by Jesus or the apostles, those things that are part of the apostles' doctrine, and we do have a lot that is part of that doctrine, and those things, those practices that are grounded in the theology of the New Testament, a la the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, are definitely prescriptive. Those things, those practices that violate the DNA of divine life, that violate the principles of the New Testament, that violate the teachings of Jesus and or the apostles are not to be followed, in my opinion, without incurring much loss and hampering God's eternal purpose. Again, I give many examples in reimagining church as to what is normative, prescriptive, versus what is simply descriptive or culturally tied to the first century. And uh, there's a lot of unclarity on this, a lot of confusion, and a lot of misunderstanding, in my opinion, and in my observation. So I, I would really encourage you to check out that book, Caleb, and would love to discuss it with you and see what you think of the arguments. Robert... Macintosh. There is no uh, blog URL to mention. When do we, the bride of Christ, consummate our marriage to Jesus? Is it a continual process? As individuals come to know and accept Jesus' life and dwelling in them? Or is it a culmination of thousands of years of preparation before he returns physically to us? I would say yes and yes. We right now collectively are the bride of Christ. But a bride is an unmarried virgin. And in Revelation, the very end of Revelation, the bride becomes the wife. And the wife is a married woman who has consummated her union with her husband. So the actual consummation will occur in the future, from our perspective, at Christ's return and what ensues afterwards. However, we experience and we taste that union Today, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him, Paul says in Corinthians. So we foreshadow the bridal union of Christ and the church. We participate in it in measure. Uh, The Lord's Supper is a big part of this, as well as intimate times with the Lord. It's all a taste, a pre-experience of that great consummation in the future.
1: This is a great dinner pretty extravagant for a first date.
2: Oh, well, you're pretty special. Thanks. Uh, How's your coffee? Mmm. It's great. What is this? It's decaf.
1: Decaffeinated coffee? Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's great. i will take some home to my dog.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What?
1: (laughs) Decaf coffee. What made you decide on that? Were you in the kitchen going, hey, I know what I'll do. I'll ruin the dinner by bringing out a pot of s***?
2: No, I I usually have decaf after dinner. Oh, you usually have decaf after dinner. Uh, that's right. uh, if you want, I can make some.
1: No, 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 no. You, you don't have to do anything. I'm just gonna get out of here. All right? Are you serious? Are you serious? No, no kidding. Are you serving me decap? You expect me to stay? <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to leave. I'll make some different.
2: We can go out. You made you think goodbye.
1: Celebrate life's moments with General International Coffees. Oh! Nita
0: Steiner at nitasbookclub.blogspot.com says. In terms of church models, where do you see the greatest growth and fruitfulness of the church happening in the coming decades? It depends on what we're talking about by fruit and growth. If we're talking about conversion of souls, the starting gate of the Christian life, Allah, conversion, repentance and faith in Jesus, will always be fairly effective in the institutional church setting, the Sunday morning church service or the Sunday night church service. At least in the West, people are very used to that. Even unbelievers recognize that. They're not afraid of that. And most of the sermons that we hear today do have some type of an evangelical, evangelistic edge and hook and maybe a call at the end of the message. So I think that is always going to be fairly successful in bringing people to christ but in terms of fruit in reference to spiritual stature spiritual growth spiritual character spiritual formation growing into christ then i believe that that is best experienced and accelerated in organic expressions of the church. And I make a big argument about this from the New Testament itself and from my own experience, having been in both habitats for many years in reimagining church, if you want details on that. Mike Levy at OrganicHouseChurchLI.blogspot.com says, I listened to your message from Living by the Spirit on your podcast. Excellent message. Thank you, Mike. You mentioned something about turning to Christ near the end. What exactly were you talking about? Ah, 2 Corinthians 3, the very end of the text, talks about turning to the Lord. Now, there are other ways of saying this, and the New Testament writers use different expressions. But I get into this practically, and I don't want to get into it now because we'll be here for a long, long time. I have many questions to answer. Oh. But I get into the practicals of this in the course, Living by the Indwelling Life of Christ. And again, you can get that at thedeeperjourney.com. But I spent a lot of time, not only from the scriptures, looking at it, but also explaining ten different ways that one can practice this. It's also called Beholding the Lord in same text 2nd Corinthians 3. So I give practical handles and dimensions to that in the course if you're interested.
1: December 14, 1503. Psychic Nostradamus, famous for predicting the end of the world, was born. But Nostradamus ran into his share of skeptics and this is what really happened. Hi baby cakes, I'm Nostradamus, famous psychic. You come here often? Get lost. I knew you were going to say that cuz I'm Nostradamus, famous psychic and I see into the future. Uh-huh. Beat it. Yeah, you know, I knew you were going to say that too. Scram. And that, in fact, I predicted some initial resistance on your part, followed by total acceptance. Look, I wrote it all down here hours ago. Initial resistance, total acceptance. See, it's in the stars. If you don't leave, I'm going to call the cops. Turn the paper over. It says, woman calls cops. What did I tell you? Take a hike. You're lost, toots. Hey, baby, I'm Nostradamus, famous psychic. Go away. I knew you were going to say that. Nostradamus, the world never ended, and now you know what really happened.
0: <clears throat> Michael Counts at one step in faith.com asks what is your understanding of James 2:14 to 26 faith without works is dead well very simply my understanding is that genuine faith opposed to mental assent or presumption will always produce good works in the life of an individual Galatians was written to legalists while James was written to libertines And I address this in a lot of depth in the book entitled Revise Us Again, if you want to explore that. But two different audiences, consequently two different emphases. However, both in Galatians, Faith Works by Love, and Ephesians, We're God's masterpiece created in Christ for good works before the foundation of the world that God has prepared for us. It's a loose paraphrase. But if a person does not have fruit coming out of their life, Allah good works, then their faith is under question and according to James they don't have any. now if you if you look at the phrase "good works or good deeds throughout the entire New Testament, you will find that those are works of love toward people in need. And if you look at the life of Jesus, his works, what the Father did through him, were invariably focused on delivering people from oppression, from bondage, from pain, from the effects of the fall. So, good works is not reading your Bible, praying, going to church, tithing, etc. Good works is helping those in need. And this is where the life of Christ will lead you, thus manifesting genuine faith. Wesley, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, S C H O E L, at equipthem.com says, God's eternal purpose is found in Ephesians 3, as you point out so eloquently. Question, can we help fulfill God's eternal purpose by making converts? Or is it imperative we make disciples if God's purpose is to be accomplished? And the answer to that question from my... Perspective is Yes and yes but more It's not simply bringing people to The starting line which is conversion It's not simply bringing people Around the racetrack Which is discipleship or Spiritual transformation which is The biblical term for it in the epistles But it's also a matter of Having those individual Disciples being built together Into God's house for his Expression and I discuss what the Eternal purpose of God is and by the way The eternal purpose is singular There is one purpose That God has on his heart Now it has many aspects to it Particularly a body for the son A house for the father A bride for the son And a family for the father All by and through the spirit The eternal purpose has many tributaries But there is one river And neither conversion nor discipleship, especially the way we have discipleship practiced today in many quarters, fulfills God's eternal purpose. It's simply elementary aspects to it. If I can use a metaphor that I've used elsewhere, you have a stone that's lost in the forest. God's purpose in the beginning is to pour oil upon that stone, thereby making it a living stone. The oil, of course, speaks of the living spirit of God, and Peter calls us living stones. Now, that stone is going to be shaped and formed to be part of God's house built together with other living stones. And that is where many of us Christians miss it. We're content to either make the dead stone a living stone by bringing it to Christ, or we're content to simply have it to be a beautiful, attractive magnificent living stone individually on its own but god is looking for a building not a pile of rocks and not individual stones doing their own thing he is wanting a habitation where those stones are fitly framed together to build his house for his expression and for his move and that is something that is corporate not individualistic and i discuss this in more depth in from eternity to here if you're interested
1: Country music has taken the nation by storm. And now, K-Smell Records teams the country favorites with the best of rock for country rockin' duets. You'll hear Randy Travis with Def Leppard. Take your bottle, shake it up, break the bubble, break it up, pour some sugar on. a match made in hell Johnny Cash and ACDC Back in black, I hit the sack I've been too long, I'm glad to be back uh, In a loose, good loose After recording with every other artist this side of the Muppets Willie Nelson mellows out with R.E.M. That's me in the corner That's me in the spot Why losing my religion The IRS. You can't escape it. Country rock and duets on K-Smell it. Records.
0: Heather at allthingsareyours.wordpress.com asks a question about the Indwelling Life of Christ course that I released in September. And she essentially says that she's familiar with writers like Norman Grubb, T. Austin Sparks, and others. And she wants to know who has influenced my understanding on the subject Including the practical parts that I include in the discipleship course. Well, let me first say that. Well, let me first say that this is a very vast subject, and I do not believe that there are any experts in the field, and that would include myself. As I say in the course, in the opening, I'm still learning. I'm still in school. Regarding the teaching part, Allah, it is not I but Christ, and so on. The major influences on my thinking. Concerning the subject have been and Sparks, Watchman Knee, Major Ian Thomas, Deverne Frankie and Stephen Kong. And these were the people who opened up the subject to me. Now as you'll find in the course itself, I've done a very thorough study in the Gospels, mostly the Book of John, the Epistles of John, and also the Epistles of Paul and Peter and others, looking for anything I can find on how to live by the indwelling life of Christ, both the doctrine and the practical side of it. For the practical parts of the course, I have learned them from various sources. Some from the ancient Christians beginning with Augustine, some in the spiritual formation category that have written in the 1600s, the 1500s, the 1700s, some contemporary writers who have expressed their experiences in spiritual formation. If you go to my website at the very top you'll see a link that says store or best 100 books or something of that effect and you'll see my list of the best 100 Christian books ever written these are 20th century and 21st century titles but I have a number of books on prayer there. A lot of it also I've learned from friends of mine who you wouldn't know their names. Um, These are people who are unknown who have explored some of this. I've learned from Christians and churches that I have had fellowship with. Again, these are unknown people. And I have learned from experimentation and mistakes and some serendipitous successes. So all of that together has been the training ground for the experiences that I talk about in the Course, as well as a very thorough study in the New Testament that I've done over a period of years on what Scripture says about the indwelling life of Christ. And there's more in the New Testament that's practical than one would see at first blush. So that comes out in the Course. I give a lot of Scripture and expound on it as well.
1: Hey, that was nice last night. You know, we ought to do that more often. Yeah, it'd be fun. Did Jennifer have a good time? Oh, yeah. You know, she wants Leslie's recipe for that dessert. She can't have it. What? What? Is it a a family secret? I told you she can't have it, just drop it. What's wrong? If you sing another word, I swear I'll pop you in the face, man. Please tell me what I did. All I said Ow! I warned you, you puke! No, you shut up! You are insane, man! Here we go (laughs) again! Ow! It was a cake mix! Are you happy? It came out of a box. She added water and microwave There is no recipe. Ah, stupid! Ah, leave it alone, yeah, You had to pry in our personal life, didn't you? Don't get up! Don't get up! Oh, I'm not through with you.
2: New microwaveable cake mixes from the bakery tree. So good, everyone will swear it's homemade.
0: Jerry Wagner says, My prayer group is reading from eternity to here, and a question came up from chapter 1 where you were describing the painful anguish that Adam feels as he realizes that he is alone and very lonely. Some of us felt that loneliness was an emotion that did not exist until after the fall. So how could Adam be lonely at that point? We wondered if there is scriptural support for his expression of loneliness. I think there definitely is. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Well, if you just look at that statement and unravel it just a little bit, God is saying that Adam is lonely, and that is not a good thing. Then Jesus himself, who is perfect and without sin, and was not touched by the fall, experienced loneliness. He even said, all have forsaken me, but I have you, Father. This was right before he was crucified, and then, of course, on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? I guess the question I would have is where is the biblical support for the idea that loneliness came in with the fall? I don't see that and I don't see loneliness or the feeling of loneliness as being a sin at all. So that was from Jerry Wagner. He did not have a blog URL to announce. Joe Gonzalez asked a question about creeds. Um, he does not have a blog that he wanted to present. His question seems to be, if I understand it correctly. Do we need liturgical prayers, creeds, institutional catechisms, etc. that are prescribed for us by a clergy? I'm neutral on that. If those things help some people, I have no problem with it. If for others they find them to be unhelpful and they don't wish to use them, I have no problem with that either. I think it's all according to the individual. I know some people who like to pray prayers that have been written out by others. It inspires them. They may go through it for a certain season in their life and then drop it. So I really think that it's according to the individual. My feeling is anything that draws you closer to the Lord and does not violate the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and the testimony of Scripture, if it brings you closer to the Lord, then I say amen to it. Mike Adams at javajurist.com says, for those of us who listen to your books on audio, can you provide your footnotes references from each chapter online? That would have to be something that a publisher does because that would be a tremendous amount of work. And I really can't see a publisher doing that. So I would recommend that if this is really important to you that you write to the publisher of whatever book you want to see the footnotes in whether it be Tyndale House, Thomas Nelson, David C. Cook, etc. Write write them and see if they'd be willing to do that. The other thing you can do is just get a hard copy of the book and have it for the sake of the footnotes Most people that I know who are interested in the footnotes and the endnotes do that. Plus you'll have the book as a souvenir that you can hold in your hands Maria Patricia Anthony at lovesongofaflowerchild.com And she asked me, have I ever heard the term deep church? Yes, I've heard that term, uh, allegedly coined by C.S. Lewis, although I'm not sure that's true, but I've heard that. And also deep ecclesiology. And in fact, I have an article on my blog that's called Deep Ecclesiology, or one man's journey into a deep ecclesiology, and it's one of the most important chapters in my book, From Eternity to Here. So, I'm very familiar with it, and if you want my take and spin on it, you can go ahead and look at that.
1: What really happened? March 31st, 1596, French philosopher Rene Descartes was born. Considered the father of modern philosophy, Descartes is famous for the phrase, I think, therefore I am. But he arrived at this statement only through trial and error. And this is what really happened. Finally, after many years of very hard work, I am very close to a major philosophical breakthrough. Now, let me see. I think, therefore, I am thinking. Whoa, that's pretty good. Okay, so yesterday, I thought, therefore, I was thinking. Hey, so that would mean tomorrow... I will think, therefore, I will be thinking again. Hey, this philosophy stuff is pretty easy once you put your mind to it. I think, therefore, I am. Back in the 16th century, you could actually make a living coming up with stuff like this. And now you know what really
0: happened. Bill Benninghoff at Bill Benninghoff dot blogspot.com says in the missional organic church how do we grow numerically the organic church that i've been a part of for four years now seems to be stuck in your experience what is the most effective way to evangelize as an organic community bill you might want to have your group listen to a message i delivered called living in the divine parenthesis it's on my podcast you can listen to it freely That was a talk I gave to an organic expression of the church that was about two years old, and they were in a season of outreach. And in Finding Organic Church, I talk about seasons of a church, and I talk about seasons of inreach and seasons of outreach, and why it's important to discern the season. The most effective forms of outreach today, I believe, is on the level of intentionally meeting non-Christians and being a part of their life with no agenda other than to love and serve them i also believe in joining arms with other groups in the community that are serving and helping others for example helping a homeless ministry helping a teen pregnancy ministry helping a drug addiction ministry to join arms with what the lord is already doing through other groups this is the work of the kingdom, and As I have put it, you could cooperate with any group of people in the kingdom, in the work of the kingdom of God, without compromising your own beliefs about the Lord, His Word, and the church. Cooperation without compromise. So that's my short answer to the question.
2: I wasn't happy with my personal appearance. I thought I deserved to look as good on the outside as I felt on the inside. So I checked into the possibilities of plastic surgery. After researching all the doctors in my area, I decided on Dr. Robert Eisenberg. He told me that with plastic surgery, he could remove the cellulite from my buttocks and the back of my legs and inject it into my breasts, lips and cheeks. He also told me he could reshape my nose and remove the wrinkles from underneath my eyes by performing an acid peel. After all this, I look almost 10 years younger. But the doctor and all my friends say that I'm still really ugly.
1: Visit the medical offices of Dr. Robert Eisenberg today for your free consultation.
0: Sue says, do some people have a call on their lives while others can live just normal? Well, any disciple of Jesus, as far as I'm concerned, is called to follow the Lord. And within that calling, there are specific ministries in the body of Christ. Some are called to be evangelists. Some are called to be prophets. Some are called to be teachers. Some are called to be apostolic workers, church planters. All are called to follow and all are called to a specific ministry. Um, Typically, when you see the word called, it usually refers to the work. I've never studied the word call, calling in depth. My cursory observation is that workers were called to the work. In Finding Organic Church, I talk a lot about the difference between the church and the work. So in the body of Christ, all are called to follow the Lord. In the body of Christ, all have ministry, all are priests unto the Lord and part of the royal priesthood, all are servants of God. But then there is also a call that some have to travel and to go into the work and I'm not talking about a paid professional clergy it's not what I'm talking about at all all according to the New Testament are Kleros clergy and all are laos laity all are God's heritage so that's a short answer to a big question Barry at inspiration-point.org asks me a question about blogging and social media and he wants to know about incorporating YouTube videos into his blog I think that's excellent. Lots of people like to watch video, but I would make them very short. Uh, This is something I don't do, although I did it once when I had recorded my office and what my office looks like and the different components and tools that I use in my office. But other than that, it's not something I enjoy doing, looking in front of a, a camera, speaking to an audience that I can't see. But I think if you do a combination of video and writing and see what the reactions are, you'll get a good idea of what works best and what your readers like best. George Lewis Martinez at VivimoSparati.com and he asked, What role do you think finances should play in a child of God's life? Well, Jesus talked a lot about money. In fact, he talked more about money and finances than he did many other topics that Christians give a lot of airplay to. There are two things that best gauge what you really believe. And it's not the words that come out of your mouth or your written statements but the true measure of where your values are what's most important to you and what you really believe are your calendar and your checkbook what you give your time to and what you spend your money on so from that vantage point i would say it has a tremendous amount to do with your spiritual life it has a tremendous part to play as a child of god What do you do with your money? And I think that it's something that you need to have conversations with the Lord about, and you need to look at Scripture and maybe get some books on the topic. Mark at xpchrist.wordpress.com asks the question, What advice would you give in regards to talking with someone who has been hurt by religion in the past and now avoids it at all costs, or someone who practices another faith, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Baha'i? I'm assuming this would be a person who is open to conversation about Christianity, religion, spirituality. I think in both cases, understand as best you can where they're coming from and why they feel the way they do in the case of someone who's part of a different religion get interested in that religion and get interested in why they're part of it you know are they just a nominal believer whether they just grow up in it or are they sold out and find out why what in it appeals to them if it's a person that's been hurt by religion or religious people Find out what happened. Find out their story. Let them vent. Let them talk about it. And I think the best thing you can do is spend time with them, share your life with them, and let them see Jesus Christ in your life. Let them see how you have overcome hurts and pain from religious people and how the Lord healed you and caused you not to give up on him or his body. So I think spending time with such people getting to know them, hearing their stories, and telling your story is probably the most effective way to be of help. And the same thing with other religions. If people can see that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is real in your life, and they can see that you have something they don't have, then that would create intrigue, curiosity, perhaps even desire, and a lot of discussion before and after. So... I think just spending time with the person, getting to know them, listening a lot, and then sharing your life with them. So it's not just words, it's your experience, it's your life, it's the impact Christ has had on you in these areas. And then, of course, if God brings such a person into your life and you have a burden for them, pray regularly for the person while you're interacting with them. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you step by step. Ryan... RyanEidson.com. ncom So it's probably Ryan Eidsen or Ryan Eidsen, I'm not sure which. He says, there are times when I feel like I don't know how to pray for certain situations or don't feel like praying at all. Then I feel bad about it. Do other disciples go through seasons like this? I wonder why this happens. Yes, yes, and yes, and you're human. And we're all human. Absolutely, that's why Jesus said, I would that all men, and he's including women there, would pray and not to faint. Paul says, do not be weary in well-doing. Prayer can be wearying. Here's what I would suggest. Pick up an e-book entitled When the Pages are Blank. It's short and it's very inexpensive, but it gives you different ways to approach the scripture and different ways to pray. I think it's important to mix it up to try different things, and also there's no problem at all with saying to the Lord, Lord, I don't feel like praying, or I don't know how to pray. Teach me how to pray, and give me a desire to pray. And now you put it on Him. This is His business. If you have a burden for someone, and you really don't know how to pray for them, just mention their name, Lord Joe. You know Lord Joe. The Lord knows who Joe is. The Lord knows the problems that Joe has. The Lord knows everything about Joe. and He knows the situation. And for you to lift up his name to the throne, I think is perfectly fine if you have no words to say. There's also scripture that talks about when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit utters, groans through us in Romans 8. And I think there's something to be said about that. And I think you might want to look into that.
2: It was 2 a.m. and I was unable to sleep. I had the most terrible stomach pains. I went to the emergency room. My doctor met me there. He thought I might be having a heart attack. After numerous tests, he came in with the results. I was relieved and a little embarrassed when the doctor told me it was gas. He also told me to stop calling him in the middle of the night he reminded me of the time i called him about the horrible rash on my face and it turned out i had fallen asleep on the couch and the and the pattern from the cushion had just left this mark i i had like the zipper thing on my cheek <laughs> it was weird or when the skin on my legs started feeling kind of spiky <laughs> i just hadn't shaved that morning <laughs> he got really mad at me that time he told me this time he wished it had been a heart attack so i'd stopped calling him but he just gave me some antacid. I burped and went home. Relief, the fastest, most effective antacid you can buy.
0: Oh! All right. Now I'm going to tackle a very controversial issue here that's been asked by two different people. Um, Jonathan Townsend at dot 1982blogspotcom And Townsend is spelled T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D. And another one by David Foreman at LifeWalk.info. And both of these questions essentially have to do with my views on homosexuality. Um, What do I think about it? Is it a sin? Is it not a sin? Etc. This is not a topic that I have really been burdened to look into in any great depth. And to be perfectly candid, there are lots of questions I have about it that are unanswered. And I'll just give you an example of one unanswered question. What do you do with the baby who is born androgynous and the doctor whispers in the ear of the parent and says, do you want a boy or a girl? And so a few snips are made and now you have a boy or you have a girl. This happens more often than you may think. Now, what happens if it turns out to be a boy, but perhaps nature would have had it that it was really a girl? I don't know anybody who has addressed that issue in the Christian community. And if you do know someone who has addressed that issue, I would like to hear it, but if there's going to be a discussion on this issue of same sex attraction, transgenderism, etc. That question has to be explored. As I see it, there are basically three different viewpoints, I'd say major viewpoints in the Christian community when it comes to this issue, and this is true also among scholars. The first viewpoint would be one that says homosexuality is not only a sin, but it is among the worst sins known to human beings. And people who advocate this view will point to Sodom and Gomorrah as a a judgment on a whole nation because of homosexuality. They'll point to Romans chapter one and they are very condemning of this sin. And even many of them are condemning of the individuals who practice it in such a way that it comes off very unloving and unhuman to many people. The second view is that homosexuality is not a sin. The New Testament and the Old Testament, when there are references to homosexuality, it was really referring to a specific kind, male prostitution, for example. And the idea is that, you know, homosexuality as we know it in a monogamous relationship was not really referenced in the New Testament it's not really mentioned they would argue that it's natural people are born homosexual to condemn people of homosexuality is just like condemning someone for their race or their sex etc the third view is a view that is gaining more popularity as I look at the landscape of the Christian population this is a view that says homosexuality is clearly a sin in the Bible both Old and New Testament and to try to explain it as something other than what we know today as being homosexual behavior is untenable. The Greek, the culture of the first century, the scholarship with respect to the words that Paul used all point to homosexual behavior as we know it. Same-sex romantic relationships. However, This third view would argue that homosexuality is no greater or no less a sin than slander, gossip, lying, outbursts of rage, adultery, premarital sex, stealing, and the other sins of the flesh. Consequently, they would point to the fact that when Paul lists the works of the flesh, He mentions homosexuality along with these other sins that I just mentioned. And while I'm on this point, you might want to take a look at an article I wrote on my blog called Sin Metrics, or something to that effect in the archives. But essentially, I make the point that in the evangelical world, as one writer once put it, many Christians get angry at other Christians who sin differently than they do. In other words, they put some sins in this category of severe, gross, serious, and other sins, the ones they commit, is being minor, inferior, not that big of a deal. And the Scripture puts all sin on the same level. James says if you break one point of the law you've broken them all. Jesus says that to look after a woman with lust in your heart is adultery, to be angry with a brother without cause is murder. So I think that issue is in far greater need to be explored and talked about and addressed than the issue of any of these individual sins. That said, I would like to turn the question around. I think the third view is intriguing, and if you're interested in this third view, you look at what N.T. Wright has said about the issue, you look at what Ben Witherington has said about the issue, you look at what David Fitch has said about the issue. You look at what Scott McKnight has said about the issue. You look at what Greg Boyd has said about the issue. You look at what Howard Snyder has said about the issue. You look at what Kevin Giles has said about the issue. All of these people are scholars in their own right, and they are all advocates of this third view that I have mentioned. So I would like those of you who are interested in this question to do a little research, look at what they have all said about it, and make up your own mind as to which of the three views is accurate. But like I said, I have lots of questions about this issue. It is a complex issue. But that's my opinion, presently. Since you asked me. <laughs> well, that's all the questions that have come in. Oh. I really appreciate them. They've certainly made me think and consider. And these are just my opinions from one beggar, hopefully sharing some bread with other beggars hopefully this will become a conversation we can chat about it on the blog and if i've taught you anything praise the lord and i look forward to you teaching me take care